Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we continue our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. The Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon Wednesdays in the Ina Dillard Russell Library on the campus of Georgia College in downtown Milledgeville. These events are free and open to the public, so if this conversation sparks your interest, please consider coming out and joining the discussion at noon Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. Today, we're talking about pay-to-play, whether or not we should pay our college athletes. Joining me in the studio are Matt Ressing, business law and ethics professor, and Justin Rausch, professor of economics and finance, both of the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business. Gentlemen, welcome to the WRGC studio. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yep, pleasure is mine, and I'm sure this is a conversation that will be of interest to many of our listeners out there as we are on a college campus and as college athletics makes up a big deal about what we talk about and argue about amongst ourselves, even here. Well, we're talking about pay-to-play and whether or not we should pay college athletes, whether or not we should be allowed to pay college athletes. And so I thought we'd just start off the conversation by unpacking some of the various issues that are under this umbrella of payment for college athletes. What are some of the different parts of this conversation? Some of the different parts you'll be talking about in the Times Talk on Wednesday. Well, we chose this issue because it's an issue where law and economics connect. And I'm a professor of law here at Georgia College. Justin's a professor of economics. And we're actually going to combine our classes a few times this semester to address this issue because there's a background in what we call antitrust law and some very particular arguments based on legal precedent. But very quickly, as we'll discuss, that precedent gives way to a rule of reason, whether this is reasonable, what is anti-competitive behavior, what is pro-competitive behavior. And a lot of those are questions for economists. And just like the lawyers in court will be bringing in expert witnesses that are economists to make these arguments, Justin's class is going to work with my class to provide an econ perspective on this issue. Yeah, when we think about the economics surrounding the issue, we really want to think about the pay-for-play discussion circling around a labor market. So if you think about players being the labor that supplies or that helps produce the good that is college sports. And so when the NCAA creates rules on amateurism and how much we are allowed to pay players, that certainly affects the labor market in ways that economists would probably consider wasteful. And one of the things that I wanted to identify before we get too much farther into it are, you know, who are the parties on the opposite sides of this debate? I mean, I think we commonly think about the athletes. We think about their universities. Is it that simple or is there anyone we're missing as we identify them? Can we also talk about what stake they have in this conversation? Sure. We have the athletes themselves. We have the universities. And then we have the NCAA, which is a nonprofit, but a nonprofit that makes quite a bit of money. Just because you're a nonprofit doesn't mean you're not a commercial entity. They're a big player on the sports scene. They make a lot of rules governing athletes, and not just for athlete conduct and kind of what allows you to be a college athlete, 
but also in the business of college sports, so rules for licensing, for example. In fact, that's one of the first places they started to exert their economic authority was in TV rights and, and media licensing for these sports. It's also where they derive a lot of their revenues. And then you might say that the general public is a stakeholder in this discussion. Anyone who enjoys watching college sports, anyone that goes to one of these schools or sends their children there, or just people that care about how athletes are being treated, they care about the product, the entertainment value, and they care about professional sports as well, because many of these college athletes, athletics programs are feeders into the professional sports arenas. Does the taxpayer have a, um, a stake in this as well? I mean, are the expenditures that are made on behalf of athletic associations, does that come from our tax revenue? I mean, if I'm not per se a, a sports fan, but I am a you know resident of my state and I assume I'm contributing something to our um, educational and by you know, relation their athletic institutions. You know, it depends. Most revenues generated by sports programs come from football programs and at, to a lesser extent, basketball programs alone, men's basketball specifically, and that's really it. And so the bigger FBS football bowl subdivision schools, uh, your Georgias, your Alabamas, they generate substantial revenues and generally would not see any appropriations from the institution in the form of subsidies. They're just going to be able to afford their operations. But these smaller FBS schools, you want to think about Mississippi Valley State or Savannah State, right? Um, they're not going to attract the amount of revenues that these big programs do, and sometimes not even enough to cover their operating expenses. So this is an occasion where the school may try to subsidize their sports programs through student fees, and if they do receive government funding, maybe through appropriations from their budget. All right. Well, we're just about out of time in this segment, so we're going to take a short break. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. And this is another in our series of episodes that are a collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. Of course, I want to invite you to come out to the Times Talk. It's a free and open to the public event that takes place on Wednesdays. Today, we're talking about pay to play, whether or not we should pay our college athletes. Joining me in the studio are Justin Rausch, a professor of economics and finance, and Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics, both from the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. This is another in our series of collaborations between the American Democracy Project at Georgia College and WRGC to bring their Times Talk 
conversations to our radio audience. Today, we're talking about pay to play, whether or not we should pay college athletes. Joining me in the studio are Matt Ressing, business law and ethics professor, and Justin Rausch, professor of economics and finance, both from the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. Now, in that last segment, we were trying to just kind of set up this conversation about the different aspects of paying college athletes. Now, one of the things that, that you added to the conversation earlier, Matt, was that this is being looked at in a antitrust light. I was wondering if you might um, just go a little bit deeper and explain why this is being looked at as an antitrust case and not just simply a, a labor relations case. Sure. Well, antitrust is a funny area of the law, and it really goes back to America as a capitalist country and our free market principles. The idea is we want free markets. We want to be able to have businesses freely compete, and that is the best for all of us. That's one of our underlying philosophies of America, you know, largely, largely written. But there's a problem to that because if you have unrestrained capitalism and the businesses do whatever they want, we found that actually that can lead to anti-competitive behavior. And to see how this started, we have to get in our time machine and go back to the 1800s. We saw big business happening in America, and we saw the development of what were called trusts. And what we mean here by trusts are a bunch of businesses within a certain market getting together and teaming up. So rampant consolidation agreements among businesses. This happened in the sugar industry. It happened in the oil industry. So Standard Oil, for example, buying up a bunch of other oil companies, becoming really big and using its market power to basically stifle the competition, saying, if you want to buy oil from us, you can't buy it from anyone else. Or sometimes businesses acting in what we call cartel behavior, like price fixing, saying, okay, we don't want to compete with each other, so let's all agree that this is the price we'll charge our customers and nobody will go any lower. So that's free market at work. I mean, that's freedom of contract, but it's bad for the consumers, and what was supposed to be pro-competitive ends up being anti-competitive. So in the late 1800s, Congress decided to act, and they called it the Sherman Act. It was an act of Congress saying anything that you do in restraint of trade, basically anti-competitive behavior, that's illegal. Well, that's pretty broad. And the courts, when forced to deal with this on a case-by-case basis, said that's a little too extreme. And over time, we backed a little away from saying all restraints of trade are illegal. And we said, well, there's, there's certain things like price fixing we really don't like. Anything else will apply what we call a rule of reason. We're going to look at the anti-competitive effects of this behavior. We're going to look at any pro-competitive arguments. We'll basically weigh out the good and the bad. And if the good outweighs the bad, then you're probably okay. And that really leads us up to this issue with the NCAA, is that they are a cartel in a sense. They exert power. They're the only game in town. They control all of the college sports. And they tell athletes how much they can get paid, or, or more specifically, they tell the colleges a cap on how much they can pay their athletes, which is the cost of tuition, or it used to be. So again, a, a little bit of history. It used to be the colleges weren't allowed to pay players anything. It's called amateurism, and the idea is this is good for the sport. They're just doing it for the love of the game. Well, as sports became more and more lucrative, they started to say, well, you know, we need to be able to attract these top players. And the NCAA said, okay, you can pay them tuition. And they said, okay, you can pay them tuition plus costs, so books, lodging. And just recently, we've kind of gotten to the point where, okay, you can pay them the full cost of attendance, 
which might be tuition, books, might even include things like travel, things like health care, things like child care. In fact, it's a little bit loose, but what's clear is you can't give them a, a briefcase full of cash, basically. You can't pay them a salary. Everything has to be related to education in some way. The question is, is even that an antitrust violation in that we have essentially price fixing, which in any other field would be flat out illegal? Should we give them a pass because of the role that the NCAA plays in education and because we're providing these college athletes with some benefits by having them as part of an educational setting? That's the real antitrust question we have here. As I'm hearing you talk about that, I, I just wondered if there is not another actor that we might introduce into the conversation, or maybe we have, and I'm just not as familiar enough with collegiate athletics, but what role do the foundations play in the athletic associations that aren't necessarily school administration, but yet do have a, a large amount of influence um, exerted over the way that some of these larger tiered uh, university athletics programs, um, the way that they operate? Well, with foundations, you have another potential entity that might support these players, but they're forbidden from doing so. That's one of the things the NCAA does is says not only can the schools not pay the players, but no one else can either. In fact, a private business can't pay the players. And that's actually where this came into court recently. So right now we have this case called the O'Bannon versus NCAA case. And O'Bannon was a college basketball player who was, I think, over at a friend's house, and the friend's son was playing a video game, and they said, hey, look, you're in the video game. So it was this video game, that, a college basketball game, and I don't think they used his name, but it was pretty clearly him. And it wasn't just him, it was a lot of players, but particularly with the star college players, you could see their likeness. Their image and likeness was up there on the screen. He said, okay, you can play as me. Well, the software company was making a lot of money off of this game, and they were paying licensing fees to the NCAA, but O'Bannon wasn't seeing any of that money. And in fact, he would be prohibited from making a deal with that software company to allow them to use his image and likeness. So that's really what got under his skin, was that someone else was basically getting payments from third parties for his work, for his image and likeness and his fame, but he wasn't allowed to recognize any of that wealth. And how has his court case fared up until now? Well, his court case is essentially over. It came up through uh, the Northern District of California. It's hard to say someone won or lost. Basically, they applied this rule of reason and they said the NCAA does have to follow antitrust rules. They're kind of violating them here, but we also want to give a lot of respect to this idea of amateurism. What the lower court judge said is that colleges can and should be allowed to pay both the full cost of attendance and up to $5,000 in a stipend. And maybe it's deferred income, but that's something to compensate the, you know, the top athletes for this use of their image and likeness and other things. That was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit agreed with most of it, but struck down the $5,000 stipend. So, and then the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. So they basically said, we're not going to deal with this now. So what that means, as far as O'Bannon's specific case, that's over, and we're kind of left with the status quo. NCAA can allow, and in fact now is required to allow colleges to pay the full cost of attendance, whatever that means, but can't give you anything on top of it. However, this is far from over. Because the Supreme Court didn't hear it, the ruling is only precedential within the Ninth Circuit, 
which means that we can and probably will see cases popping up all around other parts of the country. They're going to rise up to circuit courts. Those circuit courts may disagree with the Ninth Circuit. And we may eventually have a Supreme Court ruling on this within a couple of years. Well, it's happened again. We're out of time in this segment of our program today. If you're just joining us, we're talking about college athletics and whether or not we should or even should be allowed to pay them for the work that they do. Pay to play, in other words. This, of course, is a part of our Times Talk conversations. Joining me in the studio are Matt Ressing, business law and ethics professor, and Justin Roush, professor of economics and finance, both of the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business. Stay tuned for more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. Again, today we're having a conversation that is a part of our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College. We're bringing their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. If you're enjoying this discussion, please consider coming out and joining us each Wednesday at noon in the Georgia College Library for the live Times Talk conversations. It, of course, is free and open to the public. Hope to see you there. Now, we're talking about pay-to-play, whether or not we should pay our college athletes. We were just given insight into some of the legal questions that are being explored in this. And I thought we'd turn it back to the economics of the situation. And so I ask you, Justin, what are some of the economic questions that are being asked? Or what are some of the economic issues that we're looking at? So when we think about the pay-for-play discussion, again, we're thinking about Economists, I should say we economists, are thinking about this in terms of a labor market where players are the workers and schools or athletic departments are the firms. And so within a labor market, firms would compete for workers by offering wages and workers would work if the wage was high enough and not if it wasn't. But that can't happen in the NCAA labor market for student athletes. So we talked about how the NCAA kind of acts like a cartel. Well, restricting the compensation players can receive to the full cost of attendance Well, what that means is that schools effectively cannot compete for players with wages. And this has economic costs. Chiefly, you can think about, all right, everybody's going to agree to only pay the cost of attendance to attract players. And so players are wandering around trying to choose a school based off of some same level compensation. And then one school offers $1,000 more a year and draws more recruits to them. Why a school might like to do this is that these players generate substantial revenues for their programs in increasing gate attendance, in the payback that the conference gets from lucrative TV contracts when the team is 
nationally televised because the team is doing well from attracting these players. And so there's large gains to the school for attracting players. So they would want to bid up a little bit and increase the probability of attracting a player, but they can't. And the reason why this looks like a cartel is, is the wage rate is fixed at this low, low rate, almost ensuring surpluses for the schools that attract the players. And the cartels maintain because the NCAA bans increasing wages. And that surplus of revenues that are coming in. Yeah, revenues in excess of the cost of attendance, essentially. Economists aren't so much concerned about where the price is, but the effect that the NCAA ban has on the quantity of players in the market and the impact those large rents or surpluses that we talked about have on college recruiting behavior. So I'll speak to that latter one because it's probably more important. What you see when schools are looking at attracting, say, about a million dollars a player by only paying the cost of attendance, let's say $30,000, is $970,000 of surplus from attracting that player. And that's, and, of course, a star player. I mean, that's not sure, every yeah. player is getting Like up. an NBA-bound mm-hmm. basketball player. Mm-hmm. And so we want to attract that recruit, but we can't pay them wages. So how do we do it? Well, we, we begin spending $9 million a year on coaches that are successful in recruiting. We begin building multi-million dollar athletic facilities that only athletes can use. We have our teams stay in luxury hotels on trips. All these inducements to try to attract the player to the school in lieu of wages because we can't pay them wages. Now, why this is important is that every school duplicates these costs. In a free market, as Matt talked about earlier, schools would just compete on wages and only one school would actually incur the cost of getting the player to campus and paying their wages. In the absence of that, we have to duplicate all these costs and building these fancy amenities that, that we call the NCAA arms race. And those funds spent have large opportunity costs in the economy. We think about them, uh, public choice economists think about them being as particularly wasteful. And you just need to ask a college student about the opportunity cost of funds spent elsewhere on campus when you ask them, why were you late to class? Well, there wasn't enough parking, uh, for example. So, And could you briefly explain opportunity costs just to make sure our audience is with us on that point? So if you think about the large expenditure on a fancy locker room that is going to sit vacant for the off season, but be used during the regular season. Colleges are nonprofits. They're going to spend these funds anyway to not run a profit. If they didn't have to try to attract recruits by spending money on amenities and simply pay them, it would be a lot cheaper. And if I'm going to spend a lot of money on a locker room that the students can't use, would that money perhaps be used in another opportunity for better use like a locker room for the entire student body or something like that. Or like more books at the library yeah, or, or something. attracting better professors in classrooms, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Well, one question that I wanted to ask you all about is, do the decisions that are made on this issue, will they be completely confined to the world of college athletics or will they have any ramifications for other areas of universities in higher education? Well, just from a legal perspective, when we have a ruling on antitrust law, it's precedential for you know all industries. So even a ruling that just goes to the NCAA still might have repercussions for industries other than college athletics or even other than colleges in general. But there are very specific repercussions in the college atmosphere for graduate assistants. In fact, there's some parallel cases going on to this that question whether uh, graduate assistants, TAs, should be getting paid, whether we should be treating them more like employees. And certainly any ruling that we see in this case is going to have some bleed over into that almost immediately. 
Well, I believe actually I've recently become aware of an instance of where perhaps marching bands and the performers who are in these marching bands may also be party to any kind of decisions that uh, come out of this. With the exception that if we don't force schools to compete in this arms race, as we're calling it, then and we had a free market, then we wouldn't see such duplicate expenditures and maybe not so many programs that are losing money. So, I mean, if I can share a statistic really fast, what we see in the, in the non-BCS schools, the small football programs, if you want to think about it, if you include the subsidies they receive from their institution in addition to the revenues they generate, about 72% of them show profits. If you remove the subsidies that their schools give them outside of the revenue that the athletic department generates, 0% of them run profits. And so this is going to be important when we think about paying for players. If we can remove the arms race, potentially we increase the solvency of some of these smaller programs and maybe even some of the larger ones. And I know that's a big issue that we face, uh, not only here in the state of Georgia, I think Georgia State University is a flagship example of a athletics program that is strained under the weight of collegiate football. But I think it also uh, goes to many other schools, uh, not even here. But uh, I want to ask you all the perennial last times talk question. What do you hope that your audience gains from this conversation or takes away uh, on Wednesday? Well, Times Talks are about creating informed and engaged citizens. And I think on a topic like this, because we've chosen a topic that appeals to a lot of college students, we don't have a problem with the engagement. I think a lot of students are following this. They see it on ESPN. They talk about it. They have a gut feeling about it. What we're trying to do is really draw that conversation into some primary sources on law and economics to help them ground their arguments in academic disciplines like law and economics so they can make intelligent arguments. Yeah, exactly. And I I was perhaps a a bit harsh on looking at only the negatives of this particular issue. I mean, there are a lot of benefits to having a sports program on campus, like community, community building, character building for the players. There's even some evidence that it increases admissions and admissions of higher quality students. Um, So it's really just getting students to think about the issue as a whole and not as a one-sided ethical concern or a one-sided economic concern, depending on where you come from, but stepping back and looking at it through multiple lenses. It's the beauty of the liberal arts campus. Georgia college football team still undefeated. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, and solvent. <laughs> Justin Roush, Matt Ressi, I want to thank you all for joining me today on this Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we were talking about pay-to-play, whether or not we should pay college athletes. Joining me in the studio were Justin Rausch, a professor of economics and finance, and Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics, both from the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure hosting you here for this portion of your evening on WRDC 88.3 FM. I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.
You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM, a broadcast service of Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university.